I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to Live Wire Radio. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister, and you may have noticed that it's a little quiet right now. Where's the live audience? Well, it's wintertime, and this is the Northwest, so they're out snowboarding and skiing and snowshoeing and other activities that require Gore-Tex outerwear. But as many of you may know, I'm not what you'd call outdoorsy, even in the best of weather conditions. I did actually have a lovely hike last week when I had to park my car a full block and a half away from my house, and I was struck, as always, by the majesty of nature. Uh, For instance, my neighbor has a shrub that he's pruned to look like SpongeBob SquarePants. Like I said, majestic. In any case, while our cast, crew, and live audience are off enjoying nature's wintry majesty during our short break, we thought you'd like to hear some of Livewire's special studio sessions from last year. Now, if you subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or visit our website at livewireradio.org, you'll get these studio sessions as they happen. We record them throughout the year with fascinating folks who are coming through Portland at times when we may not be doing a live show, but they're just too great to pass up. Who do we have in store for you this time? We have got a great musician turned novelist, a radio commentator turned author, a playwright turned radio host, and a musician turned improvisational alterna comic. Tonight's show features Josh Ritter, Sarah Vowell, Peter Sagel, and Reggie Watts. Our first guest on the show, this is the musician turned novelist. This is our studio session with Josh Ritter. So often on our live show, we'll have an author and a musical guest, and Josh Ritter has conveniently brought us both in one package. He's a singer-songwriter who's consistently on critics' best-of lists, including being named one of the 100 Greatest Living Songwriters by Pace Magazine in 2006. He's recently moved from being a narrative songwriter to being a narrative narrative writer with his novel, Bright's Passage. And he's here with us in the studio today. And welcome, Josh. Thanks, Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Corey. That's awesome. Uh, so I wanted to to actually go back quickly. You've been in songwriting. Your your first record, I believe, was in uh, 1999. Mm-hmm. So you've been doing this for a long time. And in the liner notes for your last record, you were really candid about coming to a place where you felt like you may have lost some of the joy in it. Mm-hmm. And you had an experience where um, a story just came to you and it really sort of released a lot of that and changed things. The, the, the story that came to you was The Curse. And I'm wondering if you can sing that song for us. Sure, yeah. This is Josh Ritter. He opens his eyes, falls in love at first sight with the girl in the doorway. What beautiful lines, how full of life. After thousands of years What a face to wake up to He holds back a sigh She touches his arm She dusts off the bed Where till now he's been sleeping Under miles of stone The dried fig of his heart Under scarab and bone Starts back to its beating She carries him home in a beautiful boat 
He watches the sea from a porthole in stowage And he can hear all she says as she sits by his bed And one day his lips answer her in her own language The days quickly pass, he loves making her laugh The first time he moves, it's her hair that he touches She asks, are you cursed? He says, I think that I'm cured Then he talks of the Nile and the girls in bulrushes He is laid in a glass-covered case He pretends he is dead People crowd round to see him But each night she comes round And the two wander down The halls of the tomb That she calls a museum Often he stops to rest Then less and less Then it's her that looks tired Staying up asking questions He learns how to read From the papers that she Is writing about him And he makes corrections It's his face on her book More and more come to look Families from Iowa Upper West Siders Then one day it's too much He decides to get up And as chaos ensues He walks outside to find her She's using a cane And her face looks too pale But she's happy to see him As they walk he's She asks, are you cursed? But his answer's obscured In a sandstorm of flashbulbs And rowdy reporters The two tour the nation He gets out of limos He meets other women He speaks of her fondly Their nights in the museum She's just one more rag now He's dragging behind him She stops going out She just lies there in bed In hotels and whatever Towns they are speaking Then her face starts to set And her hands start to fold And one day the dried figure of her heart stops its beating Long ago on the ship She asked why pyramids He said think of the man An immense invitation She asked, are you cursed? He said, I think that I'm cured Then he kissed her and hoped that she'd forget that question Josh Ritter. That was from the record So Runs the World Away. Thanks so much. That was so beautiful. Thank you. And there's a wonderful video for this that was uh, made with puppets. Yes. By it was, uh, your drummer? By Liam Hurley, my drummer. Yeah, he's a world-class puppeteer. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. It's absolutely beautiful. And you can nice. find that on your website yes. probably, yeah, joshritter.com. Um, I wanted to get into talking about your first novel. Uh, The book is called Bright's Passage. And this is a story about uh, Henry, who's a World War I vet. And he comes home and he marries and uh, has a child and his wife passes away. And this is the story of him really trying to save his child and and recreate his life. Uh, I'd love for you to read a a passage from it, if you would. Sure. Why don't I read from the very first page? The baby boy wriggled in his arms, a warm, wet mass, softer than a goat and hairier than a rabbit kit. He held a blade over a candle flame for some time, then cut the cord and rubbed the baby with a wetted shirt. When this was done, he laid the child in a basket near the fire and then stood at the head of the bed 
and looked down at his wife's face a long moment. Abruptly, he bent low and placed his head near her mouth, staying all the while stone silent, waiting for some whisper from her lips. At last, he stood straight once more, seeming to disappear into the still blackness of the low rafters, as if he had become just another of the cabin's shadows. The child began to cry, and he turned to look at it lying there by the glow of the dying fire. Now, this child, uh, according to the talking horse, who's also Henry's angel, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, this child may be the next king of heaven. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is why the horse is protecting, you know, and, and helping Henry, yeah. uh, supposedly. Now, there's a lot of humor in the book. Yeah. And um, h- as a writer, how do you, f- how do you f- mine humor from tragedy? Well, I, I, I don't know that there's, I mean, I don't know that there's a necessarily always a difference. Um, like, say, King Lear which is pretty tragic, but is also, (laughs) is, uh, is also a really funny, you know, and it's hard to say where that begins and ends. And that's, what's confusing. And that's what makes us feel so emotional is this confusion, this kind of snake eating its tail. Uh, there's, you know, here's like, uh, Gloucester and his, his, his eyes have been put out and all he wants to do is jump off a cliff and die. And he asks, you know, he's being led to the cliffs by, he's being led to the cliffs by this guy who doesn't want to see him die. And so the guy leads him, leads him to a bare patch of ground and says, okay, this is where the cliffs are, jump. And, you know, he just falls over in the dirt. And that's just so sad. But it's also so funny, you know. And, and, and what, is, what is it? It's so confusing. It's a weird period to be in, that space between funny and, and, and crying. So it's about absurdity a little yeah. bit. So your your book was, was recently reviewed in the New York Times uh, by Stephen King. Yeah. What was it like to read a review of your book by Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was wild. It was absolutely completely wild. And uh, you know, as somebody that whose whose work I I've I've read forever and I don't know if there's much that I haven't read by him. Uh-huh. I just think he's uh just he's just incredible. And uh so yeah, it was it was incredible and and a warm-hearted review that was like instructive at the same time it was. as being he gave very you some complimentary. Tips yeah. On adverbs. He did. He, he gleefully gave me some tips, you know, he did. Yeah, and, uh, but that, but at the same time was just re- really said some really incredible things. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, what, what, what first time novelist gets that, gets that kind of treatment. I'm, it's, 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 it's incredible, you know, he clearly enjoyed the book, which is, yeah. which is great. Yeah. Um, well, and he wants you to get started on another book. Yes. right away yeah are, are you doing so i i am yeah i'm, I'm working on i mean I'm, I'm working a lot on some songs right now and and uh and I've, and I'm, I'm starting a new a new book too which is an I feel, adverb free book yes <laughs> nary an adverb uh-huh. uh yeah i feel like i've you know there's the, the songwriting and, and novels are just like these two big fields that are like right next to each other you know and there's just like a thin a thin fence in between you know if you want to go back and forth it's there you know yeah. So. Um, well, and you're you're traversing those worlds beautifully. Thanks. Um, the book is Bright's Passage. Uh, this has been Josh Ritter, and his book is Bright's Passage. Thank you so much for joining us, Josh. Thank you very much for having me here. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to a special in-studio edition of LiveWire Radio. Coming up are conversations with Peter Sagal, Sarah Vowell, and Reggie Watts. Right after this break, we'll be right back. Welcome to another LiveWire studio session. I'm host Courtney Hameister. Today we have a playwright, a screenwriter, an author, a ghostwriter for porn empresarios, 
and the host for the past 13 years of a little NPR quiz show that you may have heard of called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Peter Sagel is with us today. Thank you for joining us, It Peter. is my pleasure. It's great to be back with you. Um, and in actuality, we are joining you. Yes. Um, we are here in your hotel room at the Heathman Hotel in Portland, Oregon. Um, and would it be creepy if I told you that uh, I've always dreamed about this moment? Being in the... Being Peter Sagel's hotel room in Portland, Oregon. Really? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> In your dreams, were the doormen dressed in incredibly weird 19th, 18th century beefeater costumes? It's really bizarre. What is up with that? And sad. Like, yes. when I come to the front door and I walk in, I always feel guilty and I always feel like I want to say something yes. to them. Yes, one does not mean, I mean, this presumably erotic reverie shouldn't begin with pity. And yet, <laughs> exactly. at this hotel, it must. Yeah. How many, how many assignations have fallen apart at the Heathman Hotel because people see the guy in the doorman and they say, I'm not in the mood anymore. I can't do this. Because I can't do this right now. I feel sad. I know. I, before I was hot and now I just No, I can't stop. Creepy. I'm sorry. I can't stop thinking of that poor guy in the skirt. And <laughs> right. let's, let's just go home. Um, so I, I wanted to talk to you um, about, before you were on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, you were a screenwriter and a playwright. And you've spoken about getting that gig and thinking, oh, well, I'll just still do this, all this other yes. stuff and then I'll just do this little show. And then it just took off. So. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a victim of my own success. Well, is this your thing? I mean, did you it's just become, magically fall into your thing or is there other stuff thing. you want to do? I mean, it's, it's, I mean um, I, sometimes when I'm feeling sorry for myself, I think of Mark Leonard. Who is Mark Leonard, you say? Mark Leonard is the guy who uh, uh, had the distinction of appearing on Star Trek, the original Star Trek, um, in two different roles. He played a Klingon in one episode, and he played um, Spock's father in another episode. And uh, years and years and years and years ago, I went to a Star Trek convention, and there was Mark Leonard uh, appearing. And I realized that's what he did. His career, presumably at some point he had been an actor with aspirations to do many things, had become just basically being the guy who played Sarek, Spock's father, and the Klingon in the episode The Trouble of Tribbles. And before you get all head up with me about my pity for him, I actually knew the name of the character he played. But the, And I'm like, is that me? Is that somebody? And that's what it's become? Yeah. Um, no, actually not. <laughs> not really. And then I snap myself out and I think, no, actually I have a really good gig and this is great. All, uh, you know, but it's just the nature of my um, self-loathing. But don't you think that it is a disease of creative people to do that? Yes. Yes. So you sort of don't have a choice. I don't. Yeah. I, w I was born this way, much right. like Lady Gaga. Speaking of which, how come I've never done anything like that? I've never coated myself in latex. Right. Worn a meat dress. Yeah. I, I feel inadequate. I'd like to see it. You're a marathon runner. Would a meat shirt not bother the nipples as much that on a marathon? That is an interesting question. That might be a solution. Because let's, let's talk about my nipples. Because it's been <laughs> here in our hotel room together. It's been a problem. Uh, who knew that this would be something that I'd be worried about at my advanced age? It's not something that you think about. No, and yet... Right, it's a problem. It is. Well, ma consider that maybe the next time. Maybe just a couple pieces of bologna. That's possible. Bologna pasties. You know, that would be excellent, because bologna, as we all know, has no surface friction. It's like a super... It's like, you know, it's like a... You could... It's lubricated. It's not lubricated, but it is... It, you could slide right off it. Yeah. You could lay traps. Where you, you could have like a spy car in which you shoot out bologna out the back and your, you know, your pursuers would skid. But yeah, <laughs> taping bologna to my nipples. I'm so glad we've arrived at this. I really feel like I've served a purpose here. You've also given me my else. next column for Runner's World. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, it, it is actually. I mean, I know that it's a big problem for, oh, for marathon problem. runners. It's, yeah, their the nipple abrasion get is really, it's, it's the curse. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned the... Uh, you mentioned the nerd thing sort of in a, in a, oh, yes. as a, in a side, side note. Way. Yeah, in, in a sidelong way, you mentioned that you knew the name of a character who played, uh, of a man who played uh, two different characters yes. on Star Trek. And you have, you've, you've mentioned before that uh, you were tossed out of the Star Wars fan club for being too geeky. What, what can I say? I don't like to be pigeonholed, and yet well, I have been. Well, but uh, I read an article in the Atney Reader a few years ago that talked about, you know, if you look at the Darwinian model, um, the most attractive animals in the herd to the females are the herds who are most likely to pass on genes that are strong and, and will allow their progeny to survive. Yes. And so what the article said was essentially because our culture is now based on technology that the alpha males are now nerds. I mean, do you it feel differently? That's a Darwinian explanation. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I think 
this certainly has been a, a, a rise in, in geek and nerd culture. It's now acceptable in a way that it wasn't when I was a kid. And, uh, and I'm kind of pleased about that, uh, particularly because uh, that means that so many kids uh, who were like me now, you know, have people like me, I guess, to look up to. Well, no, you, you actually saw you speak about wanting an It Gets Better campaign for dorks. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think that's true. Although I think that the dorks are okay now. Like my daughter, who is, who's 13 now and is completely well-adjusted, is an out and proud uh, dork. She loves it. She loves science fiction. She likes fantasy. And this is totally cool. And one of the things that's happened is people of my generation, people like J.J. Abrams, who is about my age, we are now making the culture and we're making it out of the stuff that we absorbed as kids. So, in fact, we now rule the world. I don't. But people like me do. You don't personally. I don't personally, not mm-hmm. yet. Well, and you do get to, you have a great job. I have a great job. You have a wonderful job, and you write, you write comedy for a living now. I do. But you didn't always write comedy for a living. Not at all. And um, Dave Barry talks about how comedy is harder than other types of writing because there is an inherent promise in comedy writing right. that this is going to make you laugh. You're right. going to be amused. Right. Do you agree with that? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, particularly if you're doing comedy in front of a live audience, because you are so, I mean, as we now do with our show, we didn't always, as uh, historians of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me have noted that for the first seven years of our show, we did not do the show regularly in front of a live audience, only on special occasions. And when you're doing a show in front of a live audience, there's this constant feedback loop and you need them to laugh soon. <laughs> if not immediately. If not immediately. <laughs> and, 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 and you get so into that laugh and, and it really is... Um, it, it is a tremendous pressure to to make that happen. And there have been times when I've been on stage recording the show in front of the audience where the joke didn't work, and it you know, and immediately you're like applying the defilibration panels to the shows, like get it going, quick, come up with something. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, there's there you are. It's a high wire act. It is a high wire act, and you've spoken about being insecure yes. as a person. And I've seen the show live, and you are you appear to be just utterly self possessed. And assured and self-assured. So where do you hide all that insecurity? Where do you question. store it when that's you walk a, out on stage? That's a good question. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, the, the, you're getting the benefit of a feedback loop. The more successful you are doing it, the more successful you feel doing it. So it's like, you know, we've done this so many times. Every performance, three or four hours before the performance, you read through the script. And I swear to you, we, we go through this read through and we're like, oh my God, this is terrible. Oh, this is awful. How, this is... <laughs> Honestly, can we just do a rerun this week? Maybe. Do you think we need to start the show with an apology <laughs> or stop in the middle for it? You know, what should we do? Every week, we're like, this is never going to work. And then it always works. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to a special Livewire studio session with Peter Sagal. Do you ever find yourself on stage forgetting that you're doing a show, enjoying it so much, or being so involved in a conversation that it just becomes pure pleasure? That's a good question. Um... I don't, I think the answer is, 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 is no. I mean, even when it's going fantastically well, and let's take again that example of that interview we did with Leonard Nimoy, which was going great. And, and he was being funny and we were coming up with great responses and things were going back and forth in a real way. There's still some part of my brain that's going, this is going really well. This is going to be fine. You know? And I, I don't know whether that's a curse or, or, or a benefit to, mm-hmm. to doing my job, which is that I'm always kind of aware of how things are going. And I'm, it's also, you, you're always getting feedback from the audience in a way that I don't think I need to tell you because you do a radio show in front of a live audience. Exactly. And you just know how they're feeling. You know if they're being bored. You know if they're being entertained. You know if they're being indulgent. Sometimes you know, like, this audience is being very kind to me and they're letting me go on, but they would deeply prefer that I move on to another topic about now. <laughs> well, it is, and it is interesting. Sometimes it feels like they met before the show. Yeah. And they decided that they were going to have a certain personality. Every individual audience is different. Every individual audience makes a decision without ever knowing about what kind of audience they're going to be. And it happens really early. Mm-hmm. Like some audiences decide we're just not going to make a lot of noise. Yeah. And it's not that they're not, in, they're not in, it's not that they're not enjoying it. They're just decided that they all get to, as you say, yeah, you know, they all, they all texted each other and they were like, do you ever wonder where they meet? I don't know. <laughs> Presumably, just, you know, yeah. I want to know how they, how they pull that whole thing together. Um, you've mentioned that you got some advice from Ira Glass yes. to imagine when you're on the radio that you're just speaking to one person. Yes. What does that person look like that when you really, imagine them? Well, I, he gave me this advice when I first started doing the show because I had never hosted a radio show or anything like it before. And he obviously had. 
uh, quite successfully. And he gave me that advice. And if you listen to Ira, which we all do, um, then you can really hear that because it's really, that's his whole thing. It's like, hi, I'm Ira Glass. This week on the show, we're going to be doing this. Just you and me. We're sitting here at the, at the Pete's Coffee talking, you and me. And, and if it's interesting is if you see him do it live, have you seen him do it live? Yes. He does that even when he's doing it live. He's got his entire radio set up, which is, you know, a replica of his usual studio setup. He's got his microphone. He doesn't look at the audience when he's doing the show part. He will at other times, but he'll just be leaning into the microphone and going, hey, everybody, so this is what we're doing and this week. And then he did this. He ignores the audience in front of him. Mm-hmm. I was never able to do that ever. And, 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 and my joke is, and this is true, is like I'd imagine that single person, whoever it was, and very soon that that person I was imagining was losing interest and like turning and doing the crossword puzzle. It's like, come on, no, come back. Your brain just can't stop itself. I can't handle it. I come out of the live theater and and the live theater is for many people a a refuge for the insecure because you get immediate feedback. You get, you don't have to worry or wonder whether you're doing well or badly because you can watch the audience and they'll tell you. Um, I asked this of all the funny people that we have had on the show. Do you remember the first time you ever realized that you were funny? Or could be funny. Um, that's a good question. When I was a when I was a kid, it was the thing that I did to make myself stand out because I didn't have any other obvious skills. I wasn't a particularly good athlete, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I remember one moment. This was this was early. I, I couldn't have been more than I was under ten, and uh, I was hanging out at this grocery store that my uncle owned, and. This is the family business, and I spent a lot of time there. And, and we were looking at this, these boxes of plums that were Santa Rosa brand plums. And I said, if you left them out in the sun to dry, you'd be pruning the roses. And I remember my uncle looking at me and going, that was really good. That was like a double pun. Wow. You know? At 10. A double yeah. pun at 10. A double pun at 10. And I was like, hey. You know, he's like... And to this day... In a weird way, the response that I want from people is not for them to laugh uproariously, but for them to stop and go, that was really good. <laughs> One of the jokes I make is that my ideal joke is something that like 99% of the world does not get at all, but one person thinks it's the most ingenious thing he's ever heard. And that's, a, that's why I'm in So your goal radio. is more smart than funny. Oh, well, I, I, yeah, that can be sometimes a problem. My, my, uh, my Doug Berman, who I've mentioned before, his, his, his criticism... Whenever I do something that I love that he doesn't like, he'll say, well, that's clever. (laughs) Yeah. But don't you get it? Because it's a subtle reference to... Oh, jokes are always best when you have to explain them. Oh, absolutely. They're always the best. Here, let me pause. (laughs) I really, I mean, my best material should all come with footnotes. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I had a roommate one time who tried to convince me why I actually enjoyed a movie that I didn't enjoy. It's not possible. No. It's just if not possible. There, there, there's the explaining. There's a E.B. White quote. I think explaining humor is like dissecting a frog. It's not particularly pleasant, and it's not good for the frog. <laughs> it's not at all. No. Not at all. Um, just one last question: uh, If you could have Carl Castle uh, say anything on your home answering machine, what would it be? <laughs> uh, I, I presumably, I owe it all to Peter. <laughs> Without him, I'd be nothing. Which is, of course, the reverse of the actuality. I mean, without him, where would I be? Exactly. Well, we'll talk to him, and we'll see yeah, if he's absolutely. willing to do that. Yeah. Um, well, and thank you so much My for, for doing this with us. Just to complete the fantasy, can we order a BLT and get uh, You've Got Mail on sure, pay-per-view? Sure, absolutely. Awesome. We'll cuddle, all of us. This is fantastic. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> Peter Sagal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. This has been a Live Wire studio session with Peter Sagal. If you're familiar with Peter Sagal, you're probably familiar with another staple of public radio, author, journalist, essayist, and social commentator Sarah Vowell. You may recognize her voice from back when she was a frequent contributor to This American Life or when she was the voice of Violet Parr in the movie The Incredibles. Sarah's books include The Partly Cloudy Patriot, Assassination Vacation, The Wordy Shipmates, and now Unfamiliar Fishes, which is a study of America's annexation of Hawaii in 1898. This is the Livewire Studio Session with Sarah Vowell.
Welcome to Livewire, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Sure. So you actually, you studied languages and literature in college, but clearly because of the books that you've written that are about things like the assassination of American presidents, uh, the Puritans, um, something drew you in about U.S. history. What what was it about U.S. history that drew you in? Well, I did... um I went undergraduate school and I studied art history, so I, I guess I did have kind of inclination towards things past. But then, you know, uh, <clears throat> I ended up not doing that partly because in graduate school they made us teach freshman art history, and 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 I kind of saw my future doing, you know, trying to explain Vermeer to teenagers who would rather be somewhere else, and and I l- looked for other employment and started writing for newspapers, and magazines, and. I wrote criticism, and, and and then I started working on This American Life and writing kind of personal things or pieces about pop music or films and such. And then I just did one documentary where my sister and I drove the Cherokee Trail of Tears because our ancestors were on it. And that was just kind of an extension of some of those family history pieces I'd been doing. The other revelation of it, I had to do a lot of research to do that story and the so much of what I had to read was just so dull, you know. And then, but also not just dull. I can handle dull if the, if it's useful, but it, I I couldn't find a single source that really um, explained what happened in a clear way, um, and that accounted for a lot of the nuances of what happened with that story because it involved some kind of uh, internal betrayals within the tribe, and I just couldn't find a good version of of just trying to figure out what happened, all the specifics. And there was a hole I could fill, you know, that I yeah. hadn't really, like when I was a rock critic, there's always going to be more rock critics mm-hmm. or something. But uh, there was just something about that story. And then I got all this mail from people who were just so happy to have learned about it. Like mm-hmm. so much of the mail was, I didn't know about this. Thanks for telling me. You don't get that kind of mail when you're reviewing Slayer records or something. Right. Well, yes, especially when you're writing about something that that can be as emotional as Native American history in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was clear you did a ton of research in order to write this book. Yeah. Well, in some ways, it feels like you're almost a detective and you're going to be able to actually. Do you ever feel that way? You're going to be able to discover something that no one else has. Um, I I mean, it's funny you say detective because I love, I mean, as a reader, I love detective fiction. And for the longest, you know, like I like the old guys, Raymond Chandler and Dash Hammett. But these books are just some weird loner trying to figure something out, you know, and that's basically what I do. Um, but it's not like I really uncover new discoveries, you know. I'm not the Magellan of narrative nonfiction or anything, (laughs) but sometimes I feel like I can put things together, like just, you know, make a leap based on available information. And some Mm -hmm. of these things are small, you know, like, um, but these are always my happiest moments when writing, like uh, when I was writing about the, the Puritans and the founding of Boston. At some point, I realized I was going to have to explain how this, how Boston, which was the Protestant capital of America, at some point became the Catholic capital of America. It happened because of the potato famine, all these Irish people coming over in droves. And, and I realized that there had been this plague among Indians before they arrived. So a lot of the natives were killed off, um, you know, before their arrival, which they saw as a gift of God. And uh, their work was already done. Yeah. And so Boston's history is all about these microbes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds really dull when this I'm saying it out loud, <laughs> out loud right now. But the moment I figured that out, it's like, wow, microbes, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that you are... discover the crux of the story for you. Yeah. Well, and, and this book, Unfamiliar Fishes, um, it's about the American annexation of Hawaii uh, in 1898. So what was it that you hoped to discover with this book? That's really a good question to have when you start researching something. Um, what did I hope? Uh, I mean, I had uh, the bare outlines of what I wanted to do just because, I mean, the, one of the things that attracted me to, uh, I write about the era between 1820 when the first Protestant missionaries show up from New England and 1898 when 
the sons of the missionaries who had overthrown the Hawaiian queen hand over the islands to the United States. And there's something about, because it's just this small, tiny group of islands out in the Pacific, you know, it's the most isolated island chain in the in, in the world. And because it was, there was just something so, there was just this cause and effect, like these New Englanders arrive, then they have kids, and those kids are the ones who hand it over to the United States. There was just like a vector there. Yeah, they really paved the way. Yeah, and there's, because I have, um, I'm not exactly a vector kind of writer. I like a lot of tangents and, you know, side trips and detours. And and I think um, just in terms of knowing that there was this pretty clear cause and effect between, like, this one ship shows up from Boston and then, you know, a series of events unfold after that. Right. Um, that appealed to me because I knew I could... I had a structure, you know, I had this place it was going, but I, uh, I knew that uh, I would still be able to maneuver around. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a lot about um, there's a lot about the missionaries and their effect. And, and I believe um, in this book, you call the missionaries Budinskis. Mm-hmm. Um, and you I, I read that you actually I only mean that in the worst way. In, possible. <laughs> well, I read that you, when you were a kid, you were in the Pentecostal church. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. And so it feels a little like your relationship with religion may have changed a bit. <laughs> um, can you pinpoint when that might have happened? Well, um, I think that's fair to say, since I'm um, sitting here in this bohemian studio in Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. where no nice Pentecostal girl would ever set foot. Right. Um, um, yeah, there's like the moment when the the boat left Boston Harbor and like in the Hawaiian story for me, it was basically, honestly, it happened in um, ninth grade when uh, in English when we studied Greek mythology. Because I fell in love with Greek mythology. I mean, I loved all those stories and characters, but also I was just so intrigued. Like, how could anyone believe this stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, like this was a religion. And uh, I just couldn't believe people would think that winter had to do with a pomegranate and a girl going underground for, you know, it just seemed so fantastical. Yeah. And then I thought about the things I believed about, you know, the creation of the world and who created it and et cetera. And then it just kind of occurred to me, oh, some of that's a little implausible, too, when you yeah. really think about it objectively. But that was, that was you know, that was the first time that the thread started to unravel. Mm-hmm. A, a little bit. Well, and you talk in the book about how the missionaries claimed that they didn't want to get involved in politics, but they got extremely yeah. involved in politics. Um, just based on the history of the United States and what happened in Hawaii, I mean, do you think it's ever possible to have religion and politics not be connected in any way? Well, in some ways, that's not true. A lot of them did, like, keep their noses out of politics, you know. A few of them, the ones who went on to work for the Hawaiian government, had to quit the mission to do that. I mean, most of them were dedicated to just saving souls, and they felt like, you know, the kingdom of Christ is not of this world. And most of them probably did adhere to that. A few of them, you know, they did quit the mission and had a lot of influence on the Hawaiian government. As the Hawaiian king was trying to modernize Hawaii, he he commissioned a, a constitution, giving up some of his own power um, and establishing a legislature. And, you know, he privatized the land, and a lot of the people in his government were ex-missionaries. You know, one of them who quit the mission to help him with the Constitution, another one who quit the mission to work for the government because he objected to the fact that the mission board back in Boston was accepting donations from slave states. So I don't want you to, you know... Just um, across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Make a generalization. Yeah. They also affected the agriculture and industry in some ways. So, yeah, they did a little bit. But more more than that was their um, the next generation, the children, who were really the ones who founded the sugar plantations. I mean, these were Hawaiian-born kids, but they, you know, they had these New England parents, and they went to this, you know, missionary school, the one that the Punahou school that's still there that the president attended himself. Um, and I mean, what they did completely revolutionized certainly the landscape of Hawaii. I mm-hmm. mean, and by that I mean the physical land, but also the the racial landscape. Just because 
these plantations, I mean, because of all of their massive engineering projects and irrigation, they completely changed uh, water usage and, you know, deserts became green fields of cane. And, and it then, takes a lot of water, right? Oh, so much. To grow yeah. sugar. Yeah. And then, um, and then, so they diverted, like, all the water resources to the uh, plantations. And then because these plantations needed so much labor, they had to bring in all these people from all over the world, mostly Asia and also Portugal and elsewhere. And so, you know, that that's why that's the why Hawaii is the way it is today, you know, where there's no clear racial majority. Yeah. Well, there there are certainly some negative aspects to it, but you know, aside from the the plate lunch, what are some of the benefits of the fact that, you know, Americans came in? Well, I guess one thing if you like books, I don't care for them personally, <laughs> but um you know, the missionaries, they edu- in terms of their educational efforts, they were quite impressive and incredibly successful. They they invented a written language for the Hawaiian language. They basically taught almost the entire population to read within a generation. Hawaii, um, the Hawaiian kingdom in the middle of the 19th century might have been, might have had the highest literacy rate of anywhere on earth. Um, they published uh millions of pages of books and newspapers, textbooks in the Hawaiian language. Some of those books are still being used in Hawaiian language programs. Um, they taught the first generation of Hawaiian writers to read and write. Mm-hmm. Um, so just in terms of literacy um, and education, and a lot of those first Hawaiian writers, um, you know, wrote down uh, a lot of the histories and genealogies of the old oral tradition. So just in terms of... Um, your um, the Dewey Decimal System. They were um, quite successful and impressive. Yeah. Well, um, I just wanted to ask you, just in closing, in looking at the books that you've written, you traced the Trail of Tears with your sister in 1997. In Assassination Vacation, you took a road trip to all the tourist attractions uh, of the murders of presidents, and you went to Hawaii to to research this book. Do you ever just go on a vacation? Yeah, I do. And- um, a few weeks ago, I went to Mexico and Guatemala to look at Mayan ruins. Mm-hmm. Just and it didn't spark anything in you that you felt like you. I mean, no, it was just cool. Like you know, Tikal jungle pyramids. Um, no, that was just uh, that was a vacation. I do like. Um, I guess I hardly ever just go somewhere to kick back. I like there to be some kind of homework aspect to it. You know. <laughs> Yeah, you seem to really love research. I mean, I like I like large-scale architecture. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Like this summer, I'm going to Kenya. That's just a vacation. But uh, on the way there, I want to stop in Istanbul to see Hagia Sophia. And on the way back in Paris, so I can see Versailles. Um, mm-hmm. I like to look at buildings. I think because they're so nonverbal, you know. You don't have to talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. And are you working on a book now? No, I'm talking to you. Um, no, I don't know what the next one's going to be. I was pretty late turning this one in, to be quite honest with you. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a wonderful book. The book is called Unfamiliar Fishes. We've been talking to Sarah Val. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to a LiveWire Radio studio session. For more information about LiveWire or to listen to a show, visit our website at livewireradio.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back.
Next up is a Livewire studio session with Reggie Watts. He's an improvisational musician and an alternative comedian who fuses those crafts into an alternomelodic improv-a-comic performance unlike anything you've ever seen. He's appeared on Conan and Jimmy Fallon, and we caught up with him in a Portland rehearsal space while he was on tour. So you might hear some bands in the background on this one. This is our studio session with Reggie Watts. One nine, uh, he's, you know, it's kind of headed southeast. It's kind of windy out here. Okay, here we go. So I don't have room to complain about you 
but I want to do no. You don't like wearing earplugs, but that's not my fault. I like to wear them, I don't mind them at all. I hope that you can understand that it's cooperation that makes us land listening to Reggie Watts on the Livewire studio session. Thanks so much, Reggie. That was fantastic. As huge, if I can if I can use an abrief. Oh, uh, please use the briefs. <laughs> Brief it up. Um, I think it was the earplug section of the song that really resonated with me the most uh, as a lady. Oh, yes. Um, it tends to be an issue. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, yeah, I know several people that just don't they don't like wearing earplugs. And uh, I love wearing earplugs. It solves a lot of issues. <laughs> well, and if you're living in New York at the time, yes, um, yeah, it's just it's essentially just a car alarm festival out there in the middle of the night. Yes, yeah. For the listeners, um, what you what I generally see you with is a, is a big looping pedal. Um, it looks like it's to be about twenty pounds, like big piece of metal with a lot of inputs in it. Um, and what you brought with you today was just a phone. Yeah. Can you explain, just for people who may not have seen you live, how what you do works? Um, yeah, I mean, it's basically, I, I record my voice, and um, uh, and when I press a button to stop recording, it just stop, starts looping that recording I just did over and over again, and then I can, I can build on top of that. And yeah, and you play it essentially like an instrument. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Yeah, you collaborate with yourself. I try. Uh, very well. <laughs> I wanted to just briefly give uh, give a very brief history. Um, you grew up uh, in the diverse community of Great Falls, Montana. Yes, yes. And uh, you moved to Seattle, and you played in a number of bands in Seattle. And you were an improvisational musician, but what was the impetus for you to bring comedy into your songs? Uh, I always I always wrote funny songs um, since I was a kid. Um, I mean, not I mean I write serious songs and funny songs, but um, you know, seeing Weird Al Yankovic um, do. Uh, I think it was Eat It um, and My Bologna as well. Uh, uh-huh. Those songs, when I heard that, it just blew my mind. I, you know, I was like, wow, they sound really close to the original songs, but they're not the original songs. So I started doing parodies in the, in the beginning, and then I started writing my own uh, parodies, you know, non-existent things that I'm parodying. Right. <laughs> parodying things that don't exist yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pre-parodies. Yeah, pre-parodies. If you will. Yeah, always um, be prepared. It seems like it seems to me that your brain works differently um, than other people's. Uh, I, I actually read an article um, by uh, there was a doctor and a sax player. His name is Charles Lim, and he was a big John Coltrane fan. And so he wanted to know how the improvisational mind works. So he started studying the minds of improvisational jazz musicians as they were working. Ah. And what he saw um, was that they were able to shut down the lateral prefrontal region of the brain. And what that part of the brain does is it self-monitors. Um, it's where inhibition is. And it's also where uh, the rightness and the wrongness of your actions is decided. Mm. And so improvisational people are able to kind of shut that down. Does that sound close to your experience? I, I think it's got to be that. I mean, essentially, it's uh, self-analysis. You know, it's the, uh, uh, you know, that's how I determine if I'm having a good set or a bad set or good performance or a bad performance. If I'm aware of what I'm performing, it becomes a bad performance. And uh, if I'm if I'm not, um, I should say, if I'm analyzing what I'm doing, that's a bad performance. If uh, I can be aware of it, but it's it's somewhere between uh, a feeling and you're kind of like 
drifting towards a feeling and allowing allowing yourself to fall into this feeling. It's like almost like you're creating this like perpetual uh, hole that you're like following falling into, but you're not pushing it. You're not trying to make it happen. So you're just kind of like listening and looking for these things, and then there's this kind of uh, automatic element that starts to happen where you're you're just kind of pushing yourself forward uh, to to make a thing physically happen, but then you're not pushing the place that you're kind of drifting towards. And then somewhere in the middle is this uh, performance. Yeah. I mean, it seems like in in reading about this, it seems like everyone but serial killers, it would be great if we could all shut that part of our brain down, you know? I mean, it seems like in living your life, it would be great if we would we would certainly make more true choices about ourselves. Well, I think I think that's why improvisation is actually a great thing for anybody to to learn. Um, you know, and uh I think it's just a good thing for anybody to be involved in, um, to any human being to kind of be aware of that you can turn that off. Anybody can do that. You have to learn to say that that's okay. Yeah. And, and all it is is honing instinct. You know, a natural in, indigenous peoples and people who live in nature and listen to nature a lot, they're doing that anyways. They're improvising and they're, they're just reacting off of an intuitive uh, feeling based off of their experience of things that have happened. So, yeah. you know, it's different now. We have, like, this kind of weird luxury of going, like, should I do that or should I not? I, I mean, if I do it, so-and-so's going to get angry. But if I don't, then I'm going to feel bad for not making that. You know, like, there's right. that's that self-analysis, which... Yeah, Woody Allen wouldn't do well in those additions. No, not at all. Not at all. Not yeah. at all, you know. But, uh, yeah, exactly. Not at all. Not comfortable. No. Um, it's interesting. Lim's... I, I just read what Lim's next study that he wants to do is going to be what happens in the brain's pleasure and reward centers during an improvisational oh, performance. Wow. Um, and I'm wondering for you, you know, what are the, what are the rewards for you of a good performance? Physically, emotionally? I mean, um, I think the reward is uh, you, you get to have a connection. You get to have a conversation with uh, whatever it is that you're having a conversation with. It's like the unknown or the... the the ineffable or chaos or the universe, um, everything. Um, it, you have this really great, clean um, connection, and you also have these discoveries. So it doesn't feel like it's uh, like my favorite performances when it feels like I'm not fully responsible for the performance, where it feels like I was in a, uh, a relation. You know, I always relate it to surfing, and it's a you know analogy I've been kind of using, trying to hone in. But but surfing is a great example because. There's a person on a, on a piece of technology that was invented to interface with this chaotic, massive force that's unpredictable. And the only thing you have is your ability, to, your experience of what that's like and your ability to negotiate intuitively inside of that, those micro moments. Um, and uh, it's just a force you're dealing with and it can change and it can, you can crash, you know, anything can happen. But if you have a good run, you, you listened and you had a good handshake with chaos. And so I think for me, that's that's what it feels like. A great performance feels like. I like the idea of a successful handshake with chaos. <laughs> yeah. Because it is chaos. Um, I think that, you know, we have a live show and you notice as a performer that audiences seem to have personalities. Those 300 <laughs> yeah. people that are in the room that night are completely different from the 300 people who were in the room the night before. And of course, that's true that as individuals, they're different, but they right. also sort of take on their own sort of personality as a group and yes. that's the one thing that you don't have any control over no you know you never do i mean you never know what someone's going to yell or say um you know you can definitely you know i see like a lot of masters you know master comedians like on on the road and really relish those random moments because then that influences you know their idea but you know comedians are always coming off stage and talking about the audience yeah man they're, they're really really attentive really good really good audience they're like wow they're really they're a little tight tonight a little tight you know like like just descriptions all of 300 the, of yeah all really, really tight. A, little, a little tight a little tight tonight it's like right. you, have to, you have to loosen them up a little bit okay okay and then people modify their sets and then they go out and figure out a new way to access the audience you know mm -hmm. it's it's a it's it's kind of cool it's a it's a nice like little conversation happening well, you've um, you've been called the coolest comedian on the planet. Um, you may have gotten this question quite a bit, but you are you're a musician and you're a comedian. You're you're a performance artist, and they're all sort of intertwined. But let's just say I had a gun to your head, yeah. and I was forcing you to choose to do one thing. Which mm -hmm. one would you choose if you couldn't get the gun out of my hand? 
I guess I would pick music because you know, there's always music can be very whimsical and, and funny. Yeah. So it just depends on if if there was a restriction on making sure that people don't react in a in a in a smiling or laughing way to the music. And, it's you know, gonna, it's going to be really hard, yeah, for yeah. me later to come back yeah, and, yeah, and you can't give control. you a ticket. What am I going to do? No, you can't. You know. So, but I would probably pick music just because music has more flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful having you. We always love having you on the show, and uh, we hope you'll come back. I I would love to come back. I love you guys. (laughs) You've been listening to Reggie Watts, and this has been a Livewire studio session. Our thanks to all of our guests for this very special studio session edition of Livewire Radio. Josh Ritter, Peter Sagal, Sarah Vowell, and Reggie Watts. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville, introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you find people. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. Additional show producers are Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, please visit livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. All right.